Hey everyone, and welcome to the Messages Podcast of Northview Church. We are so glad you're joining us for today's message. At Northview, we're all about connecting people with God and connecting people with people. We would love for you to come and check us out in person. You can find campus locations and information at northviewchurch.us. We hope you enjoy the message. So guys, my entire adult life, I've been praying for revival in America. Seriously, ever since I, uh, I've been uh, a believer, I got saved when I was 14 years old, but all of my adult life, I can tell you that I've been praying for revival in America. In fact, 30 years ago, when I pastored in Missouri, I started a 6 a.m. prayer meeting where about 20 people joined me every day, Monday through Friday, literally to pray for revival, and we did that nearly 10 years. I've dreamed of being a part of a church where God moved in incredible ways. And then I can tell you, I honestly, I honestly believe that about 10 years ago, God began to move in some amazing ways here at Northview. It was about the time, for those of you that are at the Carmel campus, it was about the time that we moved into our uh, new facility, we moved into our new auditorium. And I don't know what happened around that time, but I can remember we had our first open baptism. And we didn't know what to expect, we didn't know if we'd have about 50 or or, or even only 20 that would just step up and come spontaneously. But that weekend, I think we baptized somewhere around, I may be off on this, but somewhere around 500 people stepped up to be baptized. And it really sparked something, I believe. I think that was the start of what God was doing as people began to see that God wanted to move and he wanted to move in amazing ways. And so we saw that happen throughout the decade, throughout this last decade. And then in 2019, I really felt like I sensed God doing something really special. I talked to the staff about it, I talked a lot with my wife about it, and, and so we went into 2020, and I thought, I really think that 2020 is going to be our year. I think 2020 is the year God is gonna do the miraculous. And so I had planned, if many of you will remember, I had planned I was gonna be gone on my study break in the month of February, and then I was gonna come back in March, and I was gonna preach a series on miracles. And the idea was that after that series, I was gonna go into a series on revival. But of course, I came back uh, from that uh, study break into COVID. And so the first day back, literally, was to call a meeting and we canceled the services. And so, of course, things didn't go the way that we thought that it would go. But in 2019, God was doing some incredible things that really led me to believe that worship uh, during the last, at least the last half of that year was amazing. And that year, 2019, we saw over a thousand people pray to invite Jesus Christ into our life. And I'm just telling you guys, that doesn't happen unless there's a move of the Holy Spirit and people are responding to the Holy Spirit's conviction. And then in the last few years, we've also seen a lot of people step up and utilize the gifts and the talents that God gave them and start to serve their communities and start to serve literally on our mission trips as well. I've watched more and more people make sacrifices with their time and make sacrifices with their money. And then again, 2020 hit and all that seemed to change. I'm just saying I felt like we were as close to revival or move of God than we'd ever been before. So I wanna talk about that over the next four weeks. When I, when I started the idea of writing this, it was gonna be a two-week series, I then expanded it to a three-week series, and now it's gonna be a four-week series. But there's just so much that I wanna say and so much that I wanna cover on this particular topic. 
Now what is revival? You might be surprised to know that the word revival is not even found in the New Testament. The word revival is not even found in the New Testament. But at the same time, neither is the word trinity and neither is the word rapture. So those three words are not found in the New Testament and yet the teaching of all three of these words is clearly seen. And yet we do see the word revival in the Old Testament in Isaiah. It says, for this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So we do see it talked about in the Old Testament. Revival is often defined as an awakening. It's defined as an awakening in a church or an awakening in a community in matters relating to personal religion or a personal relationship. In fact, I can tell you that revival and spiritual awakening are basically synonymous ideas. We're talking about the same thing. It means the same thing. It's when a country, and I'm gonna talk more about this. You know, everybody's praying for revival in America, and I wanna talk more about that and what that really means to the church. We'll talk about that more next week. But it's when a country or a city or a church or a believer, a Christian, it's when they've lost sight of God that there is a need for a revival in their life. They've become apathetic towards the things of God. They've become apathetic or indifferent towards spiritual things. They're no longer moved by spiritual things. Or maybe before when I stood up and talked about hundreds were saved at Easter, maybe it brought a tear to your, to your eye. Maybe when you hear about your neighbor getting saved, it just blessed your heart. But when apathy and indifference set in, all of a sudden, it doesn't seem to matter anymore. You're no longer moved by spiritual things. You're no longer moved when you hear about God doing something significant. Your spirit has become dull. It's like, it's like you have fallen into a spirit of slumber. So the bottom line is revival is a cry for more of God. That's what we mean. That's what we're talking about. Revival is a cry for more of God. Now the word revival comes from two Latin phrases, R-E for revival, which means again, and vivir, which means to live. So you could say it literally means again to live or live again. That's what we're talking about. Now let me give you what I think is a good definition of revival. Restoring spiritual vitality to a lifeless person. Restoring spiritual vitality to a lifeless person, family, church, or nation. Spiritual vitality means what? It means spiritual zeal, it's excitement, it's enthusiasm. A lifeless person is someone whose spiritual life has become dull, it's become dead, or it's become despondent. I don't know if you've heard the name Charles Finney. He was a great revival preacher that lived uh, many years ago. And he once said this, I loved his definition. He said, a revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. I first read that, I read his book on revival back in the 80s, so many years ago I read his book. And I read that definition and I don't know why, but it just resonated with me. It's so simple. 
and yet it really spoke to my heart and it's, and it's stuck with me all of these years. Because when we talk about revival, revival is basically what? Revival is basically when you and I decide to obey God. Revival is when I make a decision that I just wanna do whatever it is that God wants me to do. When it comes to scripture, when it comes to the whispers of the Holy Spirit, when that happens, guys, when that kind of a decision gets made by you and by me, a spiritual awakening will take place in your life. I've heard it said this way. If there was ever a time you were closer to God than you are today, then you were in need of revival. So what I'm saying to you guys, if you're asking yourself the question, well, I don't know if I need revived. I, I don't know if I need a spiritual awakening in my life. Ask yourself this question. Was there ever a time you were closer to God than you are today? Then you, if there is, then you're in need of revival. If you say, no, I think, Steve, I'm as close to, as close to God that, uh, that I have ever been, then you really maybe don't need a spiritual awakening. You may not need revival in your life. God is working, and that's a good thing. And so I am confident that in, in as many people that are watching right now, there are many of you that would say, Steve, I feel like I'm as close to God as I've ever been before. That's a yay God. Keep moving in that direction. You're making right choices. But if there's any of the rest of us, and I would have to say that I would be included in that, that there's been a time in my life where I know that I was closer to God than I am right now. And so I recognize that I need revival. I recognize that I need a spiritual awakening. If that's true, then I'm just challenging you today. I'm just challenging you during this series to decide to do something about it. Please, please don't come up with 101 different excuses of the reasons why not. Please don't blame your spouse. You know, it's like, well, I wanna come to church, I wanna get more involved, I wanna trust God more, but you know, my spouse has no interest in coming. This isn't about your spouse. This is about you. And don't blame your parents. Well, you know, I, I, you know, I'm just a student and my parents aren't as active as I wanna be and if they were, then I'd get closer to God. Don't blame your parents. This is about you. And don't blame your job. You know, I'm so busy right now, I just don't have the time. Don't blame your job. This is about you. And don't blame the church. You know, the church, they're just not, they're not as aggressive as they need to be. They're not doing the things I think they need to do. Don't blame the church. Steve, I'm really, really busy. The kids have this going on with sports and with work and with what's going on uh, uh, after work. I just don't have the time. Or don't, don't blame somebody that hurts your feelings. Do you know how many times throughout the years I listen to people will say, you know, I haven't come to church for a decade. Why? Because somebody hurt my feelings 10 years ago. And so I'm not gonna follow God. I'm not gonna serve God because somebody hurt my feelings. Don't blame somebody else that hurt your feelings. This is all about you and it's all about me. Just decide that your relationship with God is way too important to ignore. And so you're gonna restore your relationship with God. You're gonna make a decision to draw a line in the sand today and say, you know what, enough is enough. It doesn't matter what all the reasons have been in the past. I need to draw closer to God today. You know, when you go to the book of Revelation, you, Revelation is really, it's uh, the revelation of John, where John uh, basically writes down, God gives him a revelation, and John, he tells John, just write. And John, on the Isle of Patmos, just begins to write everything that God tells him to write. And he writes to seven churches of Asia Minor. 
And these are things, each one of these churches, these are issues or things that God is uh, bothered by or that God is, uh, thinks they're struggling with and so he addresses these issues. And so one of them is into the letter at the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter two, verse four, and it says, God says through John, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. You don't love me or each other. You don't love God and you're not loving the body of Christ as you did in the beginning, as you did a few years ago. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. Have you fallen asleep spiritually? Have you, lo have you lost that love and excitement you once had for God? Then guys, just decide, I'm gonna go back to that place I once was at. I'm gonna go back to that place where I felt like I was closest to God, and I'm gonna do the things I was doing back then. What was it? What spiritual disciplines did I have in my life that made such a difference? Was I praying more? Was I in the word of God more? Was I more involved serving and using my gifts? Whatever it was, I'm gonna go back to that place so that I can draw close to God once again. You know what? There are some things, uh, I would just tell you, there are some things that were good that happened during COVID. Some things that maybe were good for family or, 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 or good. And certainly, um, we saw some good things that I could talk about from here at church. But I would tell you this, please hear me on this, being away from the church, being away from the body of Christ was not one of those good things. It just was not. Don't get me wrong, I am so glad that we were able to go online. I am so glad that we were able to go digital so that people could stay connected. But it created so many bad habits in our life spiritually. So many of the things, that's one of the reasons that we're instructed to gather together because it helps us to keep these good habits going in our life. And when we pull away from the body of Christ, when we pull away from each other, it's easy for those bad habits to take hold again. Watching at home from your couch is just not the same as gathering together with the church, gathering together with the body of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, and let us not neglect our meeting together. Five times, let me tell you, if you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, five times in the book of Hebrews, it talks about a broken relationship with God and the dangers of a broken relationship with God. And here he's talking about, this is one of the cases, he said, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, it's, it's really, really important that we gather together as the body of Christ because we need to lift up each other's arms. We need to encourage one another. We need to be there for each other because at one moment when you're down, you need the body of Christ. At a moment that I'm down, I need the body of Christ. We were never created to be an island. We were created to be community. And so therefore, we need other Christians in our life. Oh, you might survive spiritually without the body of Christ, but you will never thrive. You may survive. I'm not telling you that if you pull away from the body of Christ that you're doomed to miss heaven or to go to hell. That's not what I'm saying. 
but I am saying you will not thrive spiritually without the body of Christ. God never intended for us to be dependent on one another, and he never intended for us to be independent of one another. But the scripture is clear, he did intend for us to be interdependent on one another. We need the body of Christ. We need the fellowship of the body of Christ. Your children, goodness sakes, I could spend a lot of time on this, but your children absolutely need the body of Christ. So again, do you honestly feel that you're as close to God as you once were? Do you honestly feel that you're as close to God before, than before you were or where you were with COVID? If not, then you need a spiritual awakening. And what about your kid's spiritual life? And what about your friend's spiritual life? People that you say you care about, people that are special in your life. And what about your family's spiritual life? Are they falling into a spiritual slumber? You know, guys, think about it this way. If you saw a friend fall into the water, maybe you're at the lake, and all of a sudden you, you look over and you see a friend fall into the water, and you don't think much about it at first, but you notice he doesn't come back up to the surface. And it gets your attention, and you keep watching, and you start to get really, really concerned, and then all of a sudden you see him float to the top. Well, you're gonna quickly jump into action. I know that you would. You'd pull him out of the water. You would see if he was still breathing. You would start CPR, and when he, when he starts to choke and sputter, you'd turn him over so you could get the water out of his lungs. And if you were able to save the life of your friends, then you would tell all your other friends, yeah, my friend was drowning, but thank God I was able to revive him. Thank God I was able to revive him. Well, what about your friends that are drowning spiritually? Are you even thinking about them? Are you trying to rescue them? Are you concerned they're drowning in a sea of apathy? I'm just saying, what are you doing to try and revive the people that you love? Because I believe we have a responsibility. Not only do I have a responsibility for my own life to make sure that revival, that I'm spiritually alive, that I'm spiritually awake, but I also have a responsibility as a pastor, I have a responsibility for you, which is why I'm talking about this, uh, this subject. But every one of us, as part of the body of Christ, have a responsibility for one another. So what are you doing to try and revive those of your friends and family that are maybe sliding away from God? Listen, true revival in the church is the only thing that will change the moral climate of our nation. True revival in your life and in my life will bring a move of God in our country, and that's the only way it'll happen. I'm gonna talk more about this next week, but it's, it's oftentimes I hear people praying for revival for our nation. We need to pray for revival for America, revival for our nation. But guys, what I want you to see, next week we'll talk about it, but what I want you to see is that revival in our nation doesn't happen unless revival in the church happens, period. You can't revive something that was dead you can't revive something that's never had life. And so the idea of reviving America when you're talking about the majority of unbelievers is not gonna happen. Revival needs to take place in the church. Revival needs to take place in your life. If you're a believer, it needs to take place in your life and it needs to, sorry, in my life as well. And so, True revival in your life and mine will bring a move of God in our country. So for the next four weeks, we're gonna talk about the topic of revival and what it means for you and what it means for me today. Listen, 
I know there's a lot of different thoughts and there's a lot of different opinions about the health of our nation and I'm not getting into any of that. But regardless of your political views, I think most Christians would agree with me that there is a great need for a spiritual awakening in America today. In the last 50 years, America has certainly seen some incredible technological advancements. And yet during that same period of time, we've seen an alarming moral decline. If you know history, and I know that many of you do, you know that America was built on Judeo-Christian ethics, Judeo-Christian principles by those early forefathers who were seeking freedom to practice their faith without persecution. And yet today, it's pretty obvious that in the argument of political correctness, God has been pushed out of the American culture. Prayer was pushed out of our classrooms and taken from our graduation ceremonies and other events. Any public displays of religious symbols are being taken down. You hear of lawsuits every year trying to take them down from all government buildings and this type of thing. Historical revisionism has taken God out of the history books of our children and the Bible is being pushed out of our culture. Alexander Fraser uh, Teitler, a Scottish professor at the University of Edinburgh, back, clear back in the early 1800s, he wrote this. He said, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they see themselves money from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury with the result that democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy. The average age of the world's greatest civilization has been over 200 years. And so he talks about the, the, the nine different patterns that happen in a society and he talks about it starts we start out in, an, in any nation, he's not just talking about America, but in any nation, it starts from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, and then from abundance to selfishness, and from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and then from dependence right back to bondage once again. And so when we look at that in light of where we are in America today, I don't know where you would put us. I think we'd all probably say something different. I see us somewhere between apathy and dependence, which is uh, a serious place, a dangerous place to be. I think we're moving in that direction. So what is my point in all this? I think America needs revival for survival. But church, do we really want revival? Now, quickly, we want to respond and say, well, yeah, we do. We want revival. But I don't believe that's always the case. I don't believe we really want to make the sacrifices that are necessary for revival in our life. I, I, I don't think we really want to give up some of the things that, that we enjoy, some of the selfish ambitions that we enjoy for revival. There's never going to be revival in America Hear me, and I'll say this two or three more times. There's never going to be revival in America until there's revival in the church. As the church goes, so goes the nation. There's never gonna be revival in America until the church is broken and repentant. Until that happens, nothing, my friends, is going to change. 
Now the theme for the topic of revival is oftentimes everybody goes to this verse in 2 Chronicles 7:14, and it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So that, that's uh, pretty much the theme verse when it comes to this topic of revival. The church needs revival. Not a man-made revival, guys, but a genuine move of God. Not something that a good preacher can work up or a good worship team can sing up. The kind of spiritual awakening that I'm talking about is so much more than large crowds, large attendance. A circus can attract a large crowd. And it's not always people's eyes full of tears or people getting loud and demonstrative because those things can easily be manipulated. No. True revival will only happen when we allow God to step into our lives, when we allow God to step into our presence. And when the hardness of our heart has been broken, it's only, revival is only when our independent spirit says, Jesus, you're all that I want. I surrender all. It's, guys, it's when our spiritual eyes are open and aware of God's involvement in our life. When that happens, there's a renewed passion for believers. There's a renewed passion to worship. The things of God all of a sudden excite us. The things of God all of a sudden bring that emotion in our life. When that happens, there's a renewed passion to serve our Heavenly Father. When that happens, there's a renewed desire to reach those that are far from God. All of a sudden, I care about my lost neighbor. All of a sudden, I care that I have coworkers that are far from God, and I want to do something about it. All of a sudden, I have a desire to invite everybody I can to come and see because I want them to experience this Jesus that I'm experiencing. Now, what I want to do for a minute here is I want to take a quick look at history's revival in America. There have been several spiritual awakenings that have been documented in our past. There have also been two great national revivals. And guys, everything that I'm telling you, um, if you question it or if you doubt it, please just go online and look it up because all this stuff, uh, you'll find it online. All the, the history about revivals and what God has done in America. The first was the Great Awakening in 1734 in the New England area after three generations of settlers established themselves in the New World. Well, wickedness and depravity began to creep into the cities like Boston. And so God used a minister by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who later became, Jonathan Edwards later became the third president of Princeton University. Now, the thing about, the thing about Jonathan Edwards that is interesting is that some say, well, maybe it's because he was this powerful, dynamic speaker. But Edwards would literally just read his sermons word for word in a monotone voice with very few gestures. So it wasn't like this guy was some type of dynamic communicator. But when he preached, the power of God was so strong that men and women would cry out to God. And in a short period of time, thousands of residents of New England were converted, and this move of God spread throughout the 13 colonies. Many respected historians believe that America's desire for freedom was born during this particular revival. Now, both Edwards and John Wesley, maybe you've heard of John Wesley, who was another revival preacher, they were both deeply influenced by a group of uh, German Christians called 
the Mor Mor Moravians, the Moravians. And then 10 years earlier than that, in 1724, Nicholas Zinzendorf gathered a group of people to pray for the conversion of the lost. In other words, he gathered a group of people and he said, we need to pray for salvation of our neighbors. We need to pray for salvation of those in our community that are lost. And this prayer meeting continued, get this, this prayer meeting continued 24 hours a day for several decades. The records, the records indicate that at least a third of the total population of the 13 colonies were converted to Christ through this sweeping revival. And then from 1790 to about 1840, there was a second great awakening in New York and throughout the Midwest. After the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, thousands of new settlers came to the New World and many moved westward into the wilderness of Ohio and Kentucky. During this time, they called these meetings camp meetings. You've heard that before, I'm sure. They called them camp meetings. And they were held in small towns and also in large cities. And families would pile into these wagons and they would travel to a designated place and they'd spend a couple weeks listening to preaching and singing. One notable camp meeting took place near Cane Ridge, Kentucky. At a time when the entire population, and I understand this has been a couple centuries ago, and so um, there was a whole lot fewer people than there are today. But the entire population was not more than about 50,000 people, and they had over 25,000 people show up for the Cane Ridge Camp Meeting. So half of the entire population showed up for this. And then in 1857 in New York, a Christian layman, Jeremiah Lamphire, held a businessman's prayer meeting. And when he first started this, only six people showed up to attend it. But that tiny lunch hour prayer meeting continued to grow and by the end of that year, it had grown to over 10,000 men who were showing up to pray every single day. These prayer meetings caught the attention of New York newspaper and the word spread spontaneously to other cities across the country. It's estimated, it's estimated that nearly a million people across the United States were transformed during this incredible move of God. That revival eventually spread around the world. I don't want to get into all of that, but it's said that in England, there were entire towns that were converted. And some small towns, again, look all this up if you doubt it, some small towns literally disbanded their police force because of a lack of crime. So many came to Christ, the churches had to hold their services outside just to accommodate the crowds. They couldn't meet indoors anymore. The great revivalist Charles Finney wrote this. He said, the winter of 1857 to 1858 will be remembered as the time when a great revival prevailed. It swept across the land with such power that at the time, it's estimated that not less, get this, that not less than 50,000 conversions occurred every single week. There were 50,000 people a week that were stepping across the line and inviting Jesus Christ into their life. And now we come to the 20th century. There have been a few isolated outbreaks of revival. There was a great surge of evangelism after World War II during the 1950s. Some might remember reading about this. It was called A Million More in 54. There was a great move of God then, 50s. Then in the 70s, there's what's called the Jesus Movement. That means a lot to me because I found Christ through the Jesus Movement. It was during that time that someone shared Christ with me and I prayed to invite him into my life. Uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, it's known as CRU today, but Campus Crusade for Christ back then organized the first Jesus rally 
called Explo 72 in Dallas, Texas, where over 80,000 young people from around the country, I was there, around 80,000 young people from around the country converged on Dallas. There would be speakers at night and uh, musicians at night, but during the day, they literally trained 80,000 young people. They trained us in a classroom setting to share our faith and to send us out into the neighborhoods of Dallas. My experience, what really revolutionized my spiritual life and totally changed, I believe, the trajectory of my life is that the first house I went to with the questions they had trained me, the lady invited us into her home, answered my questions, said yes, she wanted to pray to invite Christ. We knelt down in her living room. She invited Jesus Christ into her life. Radically changed my life. And God was moving in the same type of way throughout not just the Dallas area, but throughout the United States. Then there were also signs of revival in the 1990s, and yet it has not affected, listen to me guys, all of these things that we're talking about has not affected our national moral position. In fact, I think you would agree there has been a rapid decline spiritually and morally. And I'm just telling you guys, I believe it's only going to get worse. And you guys at the same time, I believe that God's gonna pour out his spirit. Now, some of you would push back and you'd say, well, Steve, you're contradicting yourself. How can you tell us that things are gonna get worse morally and things are gonna get worse in this nation, but at the same time, there's gonna be a great move of God's spirit? That's just confusing. Which is it? Well, guys, I believe it's both, and I believe that's what the scriptures teach us. In Hebrews chapter one, it says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in those final days, he has spoken to us through his son. You oftentimes will hear people say, you know, Steve, we're living in the last days. And that's a true statement. We are living in the last days. But you also need to understand that the last days of the end of the age started when Jesus first came. Okay, when Jesus came the first time and the, end, and the last days will end when he comes back a second time or the second coming of Christ. And so the coming of the Messiah on that first Christmas morning was the beginning of the last days. All right? So what you have here, a lot of times people aren't sure they understand it. When the Bible talks about the last days, it's talking about that parentheses. It's talking about that time from when Jesus came, that first Christmas morning when he was born, to when he comes back for a second coming. That's kind of a parentheses. That's kind of a gap in time considered the last days. Now, I believe we're in the last of the last days but we really don't know because we don't know how long this period is. We just know that this is our only opportunity to reach our friends and family for Christ. This is our only opportunity to reach our coworkers for Christ because once he comes a second time, there'll no longer be that opportunity. And so in the book of Acts, we see that there was a group of 120 people, they were praising God in their own language and the people thought they were drunk. So Peter stands up and he says in Acts chapter two, he stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is way too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. He says, what you're witnessing right now, the prophets foretold this in the last days. We're talking about that, that time, that span of time. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. 
Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. So in the last days, there's gonna be a great outpouring of his spirit. But then you go to 2 Timothy, and it says you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, we're talking about the last days again, in the last days, there will be very difficult times for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. Does any of this sound a bit familiar? They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure, pleasure rather than God. So we just got through seeing in both scriptures, it says in the last days, there's gonna be a great outpouring of his spirit. In the last days, there's gonna be difficult times. Difficult times morally, socially, and even in nature. We're seeing it in nature with hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and on and on it goes. So both of those things are gonna happen simultaneously. In Matthew, Jesus says, then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. I don't know about you, but as I read that, it sounds like he's talking about today. He says sin, sin will be rampant, and the love of many is gonna grow cold, but the good news is the kingdom of God will be preached throughout the world, and then the end will come. So we know that even though sin is gonna be rampant, there's gonna be cancel cultures, there's gonna be all kinds of hatred that's gonna take on, friends are gonna come against friends, families are gonna come against one another. There's also gonna be a great move of God's spirit during these very difficult times. But that's also why it's so important, friends, please hear me, that's also why it's so important for you to draw a line in the sand and make sure that you're spiritually awake, that you're spiritually alert. Or because Jesus said, if you don't, you're gonna turn away from him. So while the love of many will grow cold, many will be awakened and revived and sent out with extraordinary passion and zeal to tell others about the love of God, which is the fulfilling of the Great Commission. Listen, the church in America has stood by and watched our society deteriorate. We have refused to be salt and light in a decaying culture, in decaying and dark culture. Alexis, uh, I can't say it. Show me that quote. You say it. Anyway. <laughs> Alexis. That's the way I always knew him. Alexis was a famous French political philosopher that visited America true story, visited America over 100 years ago, and he traveled from town to town, talking with people, asking questions, examining every facet of our society. But then returning to France, this is what he wrote about his experience here. He said, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in the fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. 
I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her rich minds and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her public school system and her institutions of learning, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her democratic Congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if, if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Listen, our responsibility is to be obedient to God. In 2 Chronicles, what did we say with first part of that verse? He said, if my people who are called by my name, if my people, he's talking about you, he's talking about me, he's talking about believers. Listen, it's not up. Guys, hear me on this, please. It's not up to politicians. It's not up to any political party. It's not up to the court system. It's up to each one of us as believers. It's up to each one of us as followers of Christ. I love what pastor and author Tony Evans says. He said this, the reason we have a messed up universe is because we have a messed up world made up of messed up nations, made up of messed up states, made up of messed up cities, made up of messed up neighborhoods, made up of messed up churches, made up of messed up families, made up of messed up people. It's true. We're living in a time where it's not just our world that's messed up, but our churches are messed up. Christians are messed up, and the only way revival is ever gonna come to our church is when revival happens in your life and revival happens in my life. Paul talks about his own spiritual development. Philippians 3.14, he says, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Paul wrote, listen, Paul wrote, the apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He started most of the New Testament churches, and yet he does not view himself as having arrived spiritually. He knew there was still so much more that he needed to learn. There was still so much more that he needed to experience about the things of God. There was still so much more that he needed to comprehend. But you can hear his heart in Philippians chapter three, verse 10, when he says, I wanna know Christ. More than anything else, Paul said, I wanna know him. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. More than anything else, I just wanna know him. I wanna grow in my relationship to him, Paul says. You see, guys, the question for spiritual maturity was not passive, it was not passive, it was not casual for Paul. And it cannot be for you or for me. We need to stop pointing our finger at the evils of our country or pointing our fingers at the carnality of the church in America and realize that it's us, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. We need revival in our own life. We need to repent of our sin. We need to repent of our apathy and our indifference. We need to empty ourselves of our own selfish ambition and pride. And we need to be filled with God's spirit. Then and only then will we see God move in our churches and in our nation. So what I'd like to do is we close out 
is I'd really like for us to pray for revival, not for America, not even for our church. I'd like for us to pray for revival in our own lives, for you to pray for revival in your life, for me to pray for revival in my life. If we want revival, it starts with you and it starts with me. Leonard Ravenhill, I don't know if you know that name, but Leonard Ravenhill is also a great author back in the 60s and 70s who was used in a big way to write on this topic of revival. I read most all of his books. And he said, um, he used to say, revival doesn't come to the church in America because the church in America really doesn't want revival. Revival is not coming to the church in America because the church in America doesn't really want revival. We're not really ready to make the sacrifices necessary to put God in the driver's seat. We're not really ready to come to that place of sacrifice where God becomes the most important thing in our life. Thanks again for joining us on this week's podcast. If you have any questions or would like to speak with a pastor, please connect with us on our website or through social media. You can also find a Northview location to visit in person by going online to northviewchurch.us and then selecting the locations page. We're so glad you joined us today and we hope you have a great week.